Episode 11, On Principles of Modern Communication Through New Media and Its Consequences. Written and directed by Sean Hybor. Performed by Rupshin Shahir. One, two, three. <clears throat> now, right. So I grew up in a cult. I guess the easiest way to say it is the most straightforward. The shock of hearing that usually takes a moment or two for most people. But then again, I don't tell a lot of people that fact about my life. But yeah, they call themselves, well, called is more appropriate, as they are now defunct. But they called themselves United Order of the Eastern Light. Of course, I didn't know my family was in a cult at the time. My parents didn't sit me down over Sunday morning pancakes to explain that they were psychologically abusing me. Sundays were reserved for the Lord. I was living over in the United States at the time as well, where I lived from year three of my life until year six. We had this tiny little rented apartment, which was essentially a small garage attached to our sponsor's home. Everyone in my family shared a room, one bed, a sleeping bag for me. I know that's not why I'm here with you today, sharing. That's not the story I came to tell. But I feel like it's relevant, so stay with me if I veer off the path from time to time. Please. And thank you. Like I said, I only lived in the United States for three years. I hadn't actually returned again until now. Shortly before moving away, I asked my mother and father to take me to Yellowstone National Park. I had never left our hometown, but I had seen pictures of the wildlife, the elk and the bison. When we would stop at rest areas, waiting outside the bathroom, I would pick up dozens of those little brochures that never seemed to run out. I'd collect my favourites and look at the pictures in bed at night. Waiting until everyone else was asleep in the house, I'd click on a flashlight, tracing my fingers along the horns of a deer. We loaded the back of a station wagon in the middle of the night. My father wanted to drive with less traffic. My mom brought a cooler filled with tomato sandwiches. A strange sort of family meal that tasted just exactly fine when fresh, but lost its appeal after sitting in an icebox after hours on the road. I forced one down while I looked through a shoebox full of the brochures in the back seat. The juice from the tomato soaking into the bread. I tried to fight sleep before my eyes became burdened by their weight. The highway lampposts were the last moments I remember seeing before waking up with the lights from a hotel parking lot shining through the back window of our car. My mother and I waited while my father went in to get us a room. I sat up and looked out at the neon hotel sign, my eyes adjusting to the bright fluorescence. The Estuary. I had never heard that word before. The next morning, we would finish the trip to Yellowstone. 
But that's not the story I'm here to tell you either. Have you ever seen The Umbrella Man? It's a mini documentary by Errol Morris. I assume you are recording this session today with me, yes? Well, inevitably, someone will be listening to this recording at some point in the future. And more than likely, that recording will have some sort of pause feature on it. This is, in fact, the year... Yes? If that's the case, pause your playing device right now and go watch this documentary so you have a frame of reference for what I'm about to ramble on about. The Umbrella Man tells the story of an ominous cloaked man holding an umbrella in the Zapruder film. You know what the Zapruder film is, right? I don't need to explain it to you. What's truly remarkable is that the film is able to assume that the viewer has a foundational understanding of Kennedy's assassination. The same way I assume that you do when I mention the Zapruder film. It doesn't need to waste any time substantiating facts. It assumes you have a baseline. The documentary then needs only the first four minutes to create a completely new narrative, altering your already established version of what happened, flipping that shit on its head. The trick is, though, it's digestible. Just enough so that it's an easy veneer over what you already know to be true. Reality is entirely moldable. Now, this new narrative is simple to follow, but sophisticated. Just enough that you feel proud of yourself for following it. The Dunning-Kruger effect. You now have a completely new set of beliefs. Solid and steadfast and deeply rooted in the bedrock of your belief system, adapted from previous versions, time-stamped just moments earlier. The entire documentary is just over six minutes, and the truth of who the Umbrella Man really is comes out two minutes later, and it's just so ordinary. You immediately revert back to what you believed just six minutes prior, it's that easy to create synthetic truth, to get someone to buy into what you're selling. But it's not surprising. We create alternate versions of ourselves every day. So mote it be. More recently, I suppose, I have been researching very real applications of these principles. Only in smaller, individualized scenarios. A human exploit alternate reality games based on this reality. I guess that's the story you want me to fill you in on. Mind experimentation. Yeah, I've heard that phrase thrown around a lot too. It's a bit reductive, but sure. You can get people to believe basically anything you want them to. You just have to meet them at their most vulnerable, their most impressionable. Your country's leaders are doing it to you right now. They saturate the media, both local and national, with a sea of increasingly more volatile conspiracy theories. It drowns out everything that's real, constant filler. Make as much noise as possible and eventually the world is fatigued. For most of us, 
Anything that deviates from our own already formed myopic narrative can be brushed away as false as long as we can continue to convince ourselves that we're smarter than everyone else. It's the same way that Errol Morris sells you on two completely conflicting narratives in the span of six minutes and then convinces you that you believed both of them all along. Your bias shapes your perception. This can be applied liberally and almost everywhere, as long as you get a buy-in. Make them believe that you're speaking directly to them and they'll follow you like dust maids down a drafty hall. Gain their trust and you can get them to believe in the fucking boogeyman. This is also how our minds eventually allow us to believe in the paranormal. Where is that line? What is real? Disinformation leads to fear and control. Some of these folks out here are one step away from putting their entire fucking head in a Faraday cage. Will you look me in the eyes and try to convince me that there are yellow floating orbs out in the sky? Can you do that? Well, not yet you can't. Keep in mind, none of this means anything. I'm an unreliable narrator. You know, I've listened to some of these other tapes. These sessions you record. I heard the one chap mention Northampton Analytics. He doesn't know piss about Northampton Analytics. <laughs> he thinks he does. The first night I can remember sleeping in a room alone was the night we stayed at the estuary. The only available rooms were two adjacent joining rooms. Two beds. One for me. We had brought in every piece of luggage that we had from the car because my father was concerned about break-ins. That felt unreasonable to me, but I wouldn't dare to question him. He told me I could leave my brochures. They were safe. Sleeping was difficult that night. The door joining the two rooms stayed open and I could hear my mother peeking in at me. I would pretend to be asleep, wanting to prove I could do it, but my mind was racing. I couldn't shake the idea of a masked man busting into our station wagon and waiting for me until the morning. After I was sure both of my parents were out, I opened the curtains and stared out into the parking lot. Our car was safe, but in the corner of the parking lot, I saw a man smoking a cigarette in the streetlight. I couldn't see his face, and I doubt he could see mine, but I felt the strange energy between he and I, like our thoughts were swirling around and pulling on one another's. After another minute of watching him, he descended down a slope and into the woods. I could hear stirring coming from the other room, so I got back in bed and stared at the ceiling for another couple of hours until the sun came up. I consider myself pretty lucky, you know. Yes, my family was in a cult. But, in the grand scheme of things, it was only for three years of my life. 
My childhood was my first taste of the sort of conditioning that I would take such an interest in many years later. United Order of the Eastern Light I haven't spoken that name in... You know what they did? They would use their faith against you. They'd use these overly ominous and guilt-ridden phrases like You are the breath in my lungs. The Lord has placed a heavy burden on you. Shit like that. <laughs> the Lord has placed a heavy burden on you. Imagine the extraordinary weight of this responsibility to a God that you haven't asked for. Fuck off. Sad Messiah. Saccharine Jesus. It took me a long time to know things about myself and become my own person and have my own belief system and moral compass to develop my own character. Life is just a list of accomplishments. People you've slept with, trophies you've won, literary phases you went through. It's all rooted in coincidence. You can change anything you want about yourself whenever you want to. Your nose ain't right? Think you need a new one? Take your pick. A yellow, a red, a black or blue one. There are no rules. I remember when Chuck Palenik was the voice for an entire cohort of broken, ineffectual exennials who were suddenly aware of their own mortality. And now he makes fucking colouring books. You can only listen to so many sleep hypnosis tapes before you completely give up all hope. It's not exactly, I have no mouth and I must scream, but it's also not, not that. It's more like knowing why you kneel where Hiram knelt. Years ago, a couple of months before my mother passed away, her and I were sitting and looking through old photo albums. We had dozens of them open, some on my lap and more on adjacent tables. Even more albums rested at the base of my mother's hospital bed, with pictures spilling out all over her hospital gown and covering her IV. Tucked into one of the sleeves was a brochure for Yellowstone. I recognised the cover and a flood of memories came back to me. The smell of the fried chicken under a yellow heat lamp at the gas station, the cool damp air coming in from an open door, I hadn't thought about that trip in years. I shuffled through the book looking for more brochures and made a joke about thieves stealing my junk in the middle of the night. She looked back at me with this blank face. It was off-putting, pale and lifeless. She had no idea what I was talking about. I reminded her of our trip and of our night at the estuary but she assured me that we drove straight through that night. She said that my father insisted. It was only nine hours and my father would never have spent the additional money on a single hotel room, let alone two. I described the estuary as best as I could remember it. The neon sign in the parking lot, the brass keys needed to open the doors, the adjacent rooms, as I shuffled through my memories, she started to become agitated. 
The more I tried to get her to remember, the more upset she became. She wasn't full of much life those days as it were, and this seemed to siphon anything that remained. She closed her eyes and put her head on her pillow. The last thing she said to me that day was, I'm sorry, honey, but you're remembering it wrong. Maybe I am. That's what's so infuriating about memories. They can be reprogrammed, manipulated, literally created from nothing. Mom's gone now, so I'll never know. So anyway, I promise I'll get back to my point. I know I've been susceptible to getting sidetracked this whole time. For most of you listening to this, the remainder of this recording will mean nothing to you. It will be inconsequential, something to pass the time bite-sized entertainment during your train ride to the office, an accompaniment during your morning walk, white noise as your eyes become burdened by their weight. For most of you, the following list of words will mean nothing. Those words, colloquium, ghosts, hydrangea, tropical, will simply be nonsensical rambling. But for one of you, this will be the start of the next chapter. The lifting of a voice, the breath in your lungs. You'll immediately recognize that I'm speaking to you personally. But you'll have doubt. Sure, doubt is normal. But trust your instincts. The clues have been there all along. You just fail to see them until now. I've been watching you for a long time long enough to know I'm right about this. And you suspected it. You know. But the truth is, no one will ask you to join. You have to seek that yourself. But I'm here. Come find me and I'll give you all the answers you seek. Children of the world dream of peace after all. The Lord truly has placed a heavy burden on you. On Principles of Modern Communication Through New Media and Its Consequences was written and directed by Sean Hybor. This episode was performed by Rukshin Shahir. Doorway, the Constance theme song, is performed by Quiet Theory. Music in this episode provided by Shane, apparently. Season 2 of Constance will be released at the end of 2021. In the meantime, I hope this bonus episode will suffice. It can be a part of the Constance canon, or not, depending on how you look at it. I'm an unreliable creator. Please stay subscribed to this feed because a new podcast announcement will take place later this summer. As always, you can follow Constance on Twitter. And please, please, please tell everyone you know about these weird little stories if you're still enjoying them. See you soon.
Nobody knows what the world is going to be like when this war is over. No imagination is able to picture the sort of civilization the world will have after this conflict. But we do know that when this war is over, the rehabilitation of a stricken if not paralyzed civilization is going to be a long drawn out and uphill task and that there will be need on every hand for trained minds, for trained and schooled men. I can imagine that a new history of the world will begin to be written. And it will date, I think, from this great war, when men realize, perhaps for the first time in a fundamental way, that the waste in conflict is an unrecoverable waste, that the upkeep of enormous armies is too great a burden to bear, and that the real happiness of mankind is based upon those peaceful pursuits which aim to make available the great resources of the world. When peace comes, America will have a special opportunity for a great service.